Hello, thank you very much for coming along. Uh, I'd like to begin with a tea towel, uh, or a pot towel, as they're sometimes called. To those people born and brought up following the invention of the dishwasher in the Anno dishwasher era, let's call it AD, I should probably explain that this humble cloth was once an essential piece of kitchen equipment used for the drying of cutlery and crockery after the washing up. The gingham and checkered versions also acquired a supplementary role as headwear in innocently intended but culturally clumsy school nativity plays. <laughs> a particular tea towel I want to talk briefly about is of the novelty or souvenir type. Here's an image of it, and I apologize for its somewhat crumpled and sullied appearance, a consequence of it being used for its literal utilitarian purpose before I accorded it the status of literature and liberated it from the drudgery of domestic servitude. Entitled Whole Dogs, the cotton fabric is printed with a list of names, possibly taken from the dog licensing register, that the people of Hull have apparently given to their pet canines. Admittedly, I'm conditioned to read things like this as poems, and as justification, I'd point to its alphabetical alliteration, its ritualistic mantric chant, and its signaled meanings. I'd also argue that its poetic intentions are underlined by the names of sponsors and creators appearing below the list, which include Hull City Arts, Hull Literature Festival, and the Humbermouth Literature Festival, three organizations with some understanding of the suggestive power of language, we might assume. If we further assume that these are not the names of every dog in the whole postcode, there's no fluffy or cuddles on here, then some form of editorial control or authorship has determined the nature of the list. A list which, by my calculation, makes five references to criminal offences, six references to lethal weapons, nine to illegal substances, four to convicted criminals, ten to dangerous animals or dangerous people, four to the devil, three to renowned pugilists, one of them a convicted rapist, and four references to warfare and conflict. Without admitting to it, the tea towel presents an image of Hull that presumably didn't form the centerpiece of his successful application to become European City of Culture 2017. Like arms dealers operating with feigned innocence, list makers provide the ammunition knowing perfectly well what detonations will occur elsewhere. We like our lists, don't we? The relative success of the coffee table book Lists of Note compiled by Sean Usher, says that we do, without especially attempting to explain the attraction. Among curios from many different fields of endeavour, contributions from poets include a list submitted by Marianne Moore to the Ford Motor Company, containing suggested names for Ford's forthcoming production vehicle. Suggestions such as the Dearborn Diamante, the Resilient Bullet, and the intelligent whale, none of which made it onto the production line, 
all of which, which were eventually overlooked in favour of the Ford Edsel, now a byword for commercial failure. Who wouldn't want to be the driver of an intelligent whale? <laughs> Who wouldn't gladly trade in their Mini 1 or their Telza Model 3 to be transported by a Marianne Moore christened Utopian Turtle Top or a Mongoose Civic? Also included in lists of note are a couple of lists drawn up by the 20-year-old Sylvia Plath before her return to Smith College following illness. The first being a three-point plan for attracting the romantic attentions of one Myron Lotz. Point one, I will not overwhelm him by breathless overenthusiasm. The second list consisting of 10 exhortations towards positivism and cheerfulness which in retrospect we can't help but read for their tragic irony. Also included in lists of note is a compilation of words taken from Walt Whitman's <coughs> notebook as he laid the groundwork for his major elegy when lilacs last in the dooryard bloomed following the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. For a poet of Whitman's eloquence and confidence it's a surprisingly crude inventory of death-related vocabulary, including tears, black, sad, and gloomy. But reassuring too, reminding us how even the most celebrated and affirmed poets in their search for the transcendent sometimes have to kiss a lot of plain-looking frogs. It also sheds a little light on how Whitman a compulsive lister and cataloguer within his own poems arrived at those compositions from similarly constructed prototypes. I'll come back to Whitman towards the end of the lecture. I'm pretty confident I can put him aside for 50 minutes without his reputation deteriorating in the meantime. And I'll stay a little longer with Marianne Moore, if I may. To become aware of lists in poetry, and then to notice them in so many poems is not to fall victim to frequency illusion syndrome, but to genuinely realize how intrinsic lists are to poetic practice. From the macro organization and grand architecture of entire works to the internal furnishings and flourishings that a poem might occasionally or suddenly employ. Flourishings like the unexpected unexpected, superabundant, riotous digest of flora that springs up unannounced in the fifth stanza of Moore's early poem, The Steeplejack. The tropics at first hand, as she puts it. Here's that section of the poem as it appeared in 1932 volume of poetry, a magazine of verse, looking pretty hotchpotch and scattergun at first glance until the instinctive organizer within us recognizes the recurring visual shape of each stanza and the inner bean counter registers the repeated number of syllables on a line-for-line -line basis. Disguised by what might seem austerity, the seaside flowers and trees are favored by the fog so that you have the tropics at first hand. The trumpet vine, foxglove, giant snapdragon, a salad that has spots and stripes, 
Morning glories, gourds on moon vines trained on fishing twine at the back door. Cattails, flags, blueberries and spiderwort, striped grass, lichens, sunflowers, asters, daisies, the yellow and the crab claw blue ones with green bracts, toad plant, petunias, ferns, pink lilies, blue ones, tigers, poppies, black sweet peas. By which time we're experiencing both a painted picture postcard orderliness of a quaint New England township while simultaneously being inundated and intoxicated by nature's profusion and variety. Just as the town steeplejack won C.J. Poole dangling precariously from the gold star on the church's out-of-kilter spire will be a harbinger of both fixity and the unknown. Moore was something of a poetic pioneer in terms of her deregulated syntax and her breezy loquaciousness. But looking east from Mr. Poole's vertiginous vantage point across three and a half thousand miles of Atlantic Ocean and 600 years of time towards Old England, or at least Middle England, or at least Middle English, Moore would have been aware of earlier poets letting lists and inventories set up amplificatory or discordant relationships within the stanzas that caged them. In fit two of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, after three sections of cataloguing the would-be hero's apparel, armour and kit bag, and despite admitting, though tarry hit me should, i.e. though it will delay me, the anonymous author embarks on a detailed explication of the pentangle painted on the outside of the young knight's shield. What follows is actually a list within a list, a numbered indexing of Gawain's five virtues expressed in multiples of five, resonating and reverberating through exaggerated alliteration. Here's how it looks and sounds in Tolkien's translation. First faultless was he found in his five senses, and next in his five fingers he failed at no time. And firmly on the five wounds all his faith was set that Christ received on the cross, as the creed tells us. And wherever the brave man into battle was come, on this beyond all things was his earnest thought, that ever from the five joys all his valour he gained, that to heaven's courteous queen once came from her child. From which cause the knight had in comely wise on the inner side of his shield her image depainted, and that when he cast his eyes thither his courage never failed. The fifth five that was used, as I find by this knight, was free giving and friendliness first before all, and chastity and chivalry ever changeless and straight, and piety surpassing all points. These perfect five were hasped upon him harder than on any man else. The intruding voice of the poet might have apologized for holding up the narrative with this apparent digression. But in fact, his anoracking sidebar serves a wider thematic purpose. 
because the five-pointed pentangle on the outside of Gawain's shield is presented as an endless knot, an Escher-style design of geometrical continuousness with no beginning or end. And by setting Gawain's qualities ringing and riffing within that infinitely ricocheting framework, we're being supplied with the subconscious impression of a knight whose faithfulness will never break, whose loyalty is eternal, and whose sense of duty is incorruptible. Chucking the image of the Virgin Mary depainted on the inside of the shield, and young Gawain becomes pretty much invulnerable, making his lapse in judgment later in the poem all the more thrilling and significant. In Pearl, probably by the same poet, the dream vision reaches its crescendo with a glimpse of heavenly Jerusalem, archaeologically and architecturally recreated from its source in Revelation 21, 19 to 20. Here it is, reversified by Mary Boroff. As John had named them in writ divine, each stone in order by name I knew. Jasper was the first in line. At the lowest level it came in view. Green ingrained, I saw it shine. The second was the sapphire blue. The clear chalcedony, rare and fine, was third in degree in order due. The fourth, the emerald green of hue. Sardonyx fifth was set thereon. The sixth, the ruby he saw ensue in Apocalypse, the Apostle John. To these John joined the chrysolite, the seventh in that foundation's face, the eighth, the beryl clear and white, the twin-hued topaz ninth to trace, the chrysoprase tenth in order right, jacinth held the eleventh place, the twelfth, the amethyst most of might, blent blue and purple in royal blaze. As well as bearing witness to the shining citadel, it's as if we're experiencing its very construction taking place before our eyes. A, methodic, a methodical layer by layer building up of the palace of heaven from base to pinnacle. Though to play the part of observers, our eyes must travel in a downward direction through the poem, perhaps encountering the reflection of heavenly Jerusalem as it appears upside down in the water that separates the dreamer from his pearl and this life from the next. Displayed in such a manner, the list allows us to sample the earthbound and ethereal in simultaneous equipoise. One a castle in the air reaching into the skies, the other a mirage culminating at our feet. When I teach creative writing, in classrooms at Sheffield University, for example, or in the remote farmhouses and barns belonging to the Arvon Foundation, or tomorrow morning in the English faculty here, 10 a.m. prompt, bring biscuits and tipex. I occasionally put forward a theory of composition which argues that all the best poems are made up of a combination of interesting and dull words. By best poems, I mean the ones that I like. 
If you're egotistical enough to tell others, others how to write, you might as well go the whole hog and assume that the Venn diagram of absolute critical judgment and your own personal taste looks like a total solar eclipse. And while accepting that one person's dull word is someone else's PhD thesis and vice versa, and even though it isn't the most advanced literary assertion ever proposed, my theory serves to steer students away from poetry made entirely of highfalutin, grandiose, rhetorical, magniloquent, alienating language on the one hand, and on the other hand, away from unrewarding, unchallenging poetry made entirely of mundane, everyday, tenepenny words from the lower orders of the linguistic food chain. If you've used the word walk in your poem, I'll say to them, if a character in your poem has taken a walk, isn't that the weakest and most casual term, the genus rather than the species, the widest and least precise taxonomic indicator? As a reader, I actually find it very hard to visualize somebody walking. But tell me that they ambled or shuffled or hobbled or hurried, sidled, paced, careered, skipped, traipsed, tramped, trotted, schlepped, slogged or strutted, then I get a much clearer picture of both the action and the character performing it. Reversely, if you tell me your character went pusillanimously promenading along the pavement or undertook a perambulatory peregrination of the premises, then I'm probably going to think your character was a bit of a prat. <laughs> and that you are too. <laughs> W.H. Auden's The Fall of Rome is a good example of how such oppositions work. Moving between the know-it-all pomposity of cerebratonic Cato may extol the ancient disciplines in lines 13 and 14, to the commonplace, commonplace wording of the poem's final stanza, which concludes, Altogether elsewhere, vast herds of reindeer move across, miles and miles of golden moss, silently and very fast. Very fast. Really? Out of context, it's almost McGonigal-esque in its banality especially when tapped out in trachaic tetrameter. Yet the note it strikes after the intentional over-articulation preceding it serves a number of purposes. It reenacts the poem's juxtaposing of epic and everyday occurrences, and it demystifies, even rehumanizes the poet. And move is interesting, seemingly neutral, lacking focus and accuracy. According to the laws of poetic composition regarding beings in motion laid down at this lectern only two minutes ago, shouldn't those reindeers glide or hoof or stream? But their detachment is our engagement. The way they move and the way that moves us is animated and occasioned by the same verb. This is still a lecture about lists. If I seem to have veered off piste, please bear with me 
as I slalom through the woods for a page or two more. Ordinary language is often reserved for bridging or linking material in poems, though it's often by those apparently humdrum moments of connective grammar rather than the headline-grabbing Hollywood marquee words and phrases that poems succeed or fail. We can imagine Whitman looking down at his glossary of bereavement, hoping to build a mausoleum for his beloved president, thinking, okay, here are the big timbers for the roof beams and joists, and here are the stone slabs for the floor. But where are the roof tiles and spars? What do I use for mortar? How do I fashion a hinge for the door? A correspondence broke out recently across the pages of PN Review. PN Review being the political wing of Carcanet Publishing. After Greville Lindop took against James Booth's book, Philip Larkin, Life, Art and Love, and somewhat against Larkin himself. In response to Booth's list of Larkin's 10 great elegies, Lindop identified what he saw as flaws in some of the poems, reserving particular scorn for the second line of The Wits and Weddings, calling it perhaps the most vacuous line in all English poetry. Lindop, a canny poet himself, is also an astute critic, so he knows how much responsibility he's placing on the word perhaps. Without it, we'd have to be mightily impressed not just by the breadth of his reading, but by his ability and inclination to compare every line in English poetry with every other line, then produce a hierarchy of vacuousness in which line two of the Wits and Weddings was the chart topper. Let's just remind ourselves how the poem leaves Hull Paragon Station, or Paragon Interchange, as it now stands in the city of frightening sounding dogs. That Whitson, I was late getting away. Not till about 1.20 on the sunlit Saturday did my three quarters empty train pull out. All windows down, all cushions hot, all sense of being in a hurry gone. <coughs> Admittedly, there is something a little strained and contrived in not till about. The consequence of an indented half line not leaving much wiggle room, and an enforced rhyme scheme that at a later point in the same stanza draws Larkin into rhyming sense with the archaic thence. Lindop suggests that not till about has been fitted in like a piece of Meccano. For those people of the dishwasher generation, <laughs> too young to understand that reference, Meccano was a construction-based toy consisting of perforated metal struts coupled together by nuts and bolts, popular in an age when the world was made out of actual things. But in Larkin's defense, I like the way that in the anal, uptight world of the speaker, 120 is an approximation and how such affected casualness reverts to strict punctuality after the line break, and how the offhand till is preferred to the more formal until, the gauche larkin unbuttoning his top button, if not exactly taking off his tie. 
And I like the way an apparent confession of personal tardiness in the opening line has been reshaped as a typically British complaint against a late-running railway service by Line 4. At every turn in the stanza, affected nonchalance is trumped by tradition and reserve. But my real purpose in focusing on Lindop's criticism of that line is simply to demonstrate how much attention those awkward, eggy passages in a poem can attract and how difficult they are to execute. Which is one of the reasons, I would argue, circumnavigatory skier rejoining the main slope here, why poets have from time to time avoided them and offered instead a series of hopefully pertinent but uncombined, unattached, unyoked statements instead, i.e. a list. One night in a hotel bar in the US, after a poetry reading at a nearby university, a fellow poet experiencing a dark night of the soul told me, people think there's too much continuity in my work. By people, he didn't really mean people. The 325 million citizens of the USA who, judging by book sales, don't give a flying fig about poetry full stop, let alone its continuity quotient. <laughs> Brackets, though the North American public's lack of interest in poetry and that country's low poetic continuity quotient may not be unrelated, close brackets. By people, he meant the academy, the establishment, the editors, committees, prize givers, laurel weavers and keepers of the purses. He felt emboldened to articulate this grievance, I assume, because he detected in my own work a propensity towards continuity akin to that in his own. So for a few minutes, in a shady alcove of that New Jersey hostelry, we were allies and conspirators, resistance fighters, plotting against poetic fragmentation, whispering our comprehensible curses against the evil all-pervasive non-sequitur and the discontinued thought. Is listing a gendered device in poetry, I wonder? Obviously, it's not an exclusively male prerogative. I've talked about Marianne Moore, and look how extensively and effectively lists operate in Christina Rossetti's Goblin Market, for example. Only an exhaustive an exhausting mathematical survey would tell us if listing is a predominantly male tendency. And even then, we'd have to factor in the extent to which the publishing of poetry in general has been, over the course of history, a predominantly male privilege. But is the ranking, sequencing, serialising, cataloguing and ordering of the world concomitant with an authoritative voice and a patriarchal perspective. Certainly in more recent times, the list has been associated with male attitudes and identity through tabloid culture, lad mags, and the genre known as lad lit, offering a portrait of the redundant, semi-autistic and impotent contemporary Western male and his futile attempts to impose order and meaning on life 
through the non-negotiable alphabetical curating of his record collection. For the dishwasher and post Meccano generation, <laughs> with those connotations as a backdrop, there are times when the list can acquire a subversive countercultural potency and poignancy, and more so, I'd suggest, when list poems actually address the power dynamics of male female relationships. In this section, from the poetic sequence, The Split, from Susan Wheeler's 2012 collection, Meme. An acrimonious bust-up or bust-ups are given the list treatment, as if marital vows were being redrawn as a slanging match or rap sheet. One, she was starting to look like her mother. Two, she was clingier than pantyhose. Three, he stayed out all night. Four, she liked to cuff me when she got ploughed. Five, he was vapid. Six, she was a fool. Seven, she ridiculed me in front of the dogs. Eight, he stuck a hairpin in my ear. Nine, he had an affair with my older sister. Ten, he spent our money on booze and bennies. Eleven, she wouldn't clean and it stank like bad beef. 12. I tried to hang myself, but it didn't work. 13. He didn't like my sweet potato pie and said his mother made it better. 14. She wouldn't learn trigonometry for me. 15. I took it all out on the little ones. 16. She couldn't get pregnant. 17. He was shooting blanks. 18. He made for a pitiful sight in a bathing suit. 19. I wanted out. Then I didn't. Then I did. 20, I just couldn't live without Sally. 21, he wanted me to start a family and start it now with me. 22, she split when the money ran out. 23, I gave her three more chances and then I left. 24, she hated the Dave Clark Five. 25, I was indentured. I didn't know I could choose not to. 26, he went out for gum, etc. 27, by April, she had passed on. 28, he saw only his idea of me. 29, we couldn't agree on an invitation font. 30, he was bad news, and it's always like, bad news, here I am. The numbering lends a queasy sense of officiousness and detachment to the poem and the page, as if presenting a compiled chart of allegations. And although there's an even-handedness on display and no ostensible adjudication, the very act of offering those allegations in list format and in a poetic context feels subjective, strategic, political, like someone playing someone else at their own game, like the tables being turned. As with most of Wheeler's work, we're never absolutely confident about who's speaking in the poem or who the poems speak for, whether a voice is observing, confessing, or ventriloquizing. The voice and voices in Salima Hill's 2001 collection, Bunny, are similarly distorted and refracted, though there's a far darker relationship taking place in the rooms of a house where many of the poems are located. One of the most disturbing suites of poems I've read in the past 20 years, the majority of the pieces in Bunny are only half a dozen lines long if that. So the three poems that do push on towards the bottom of the page in unbroken stanzas as lists 
become especially conspicuous. In Galloping Alopecia, a young girl recounts the criticisms made against her by the lodger, a minatory occasional presence in the book, not someone you'd like to meet on the landing at night. The lodger blamed the galloping alopecia her aunt still nursed behind closed doors on her. And he didn't like the way she dropped her tees, and he didn't like the skin on her heels, and the way she straightened her beautiful curly hair, and jumped on thistles, and didn't come home till bedtime, and came home covered in straw, and befriended dogs with mud on her skirt, and hands like gardening gloves and the tone of her voice, and the way she said, can I get down, and the way she refused to sit down in his first-class carriage, and refused his sweets, and refused to look up from her beetles, and refused to decide to worship the ground he trod on. He didn't like her knees like cardboard boxes. He didn't like the way she'd disappear as if she was right, and had a surprise for him, and she was the one who was never going to forget, who witnessed his sorrow, who witnessed his altered blood, who came across him stooping in the bathroom, making up secret parcels of wild violets, for who or why nobody dares to wonder. The complaints are delivered unceasingly, the list indicative of a systematic campaign of personal diminishment and attempted psychological control. The speaker's quirky and at times obstinate personality, as implied by the nature of the accusations, appear to offer hope. But those moments of spirited resistance are met by renewed disapproval after the semicolon, making her plight, as I read it, all the more pitiful. The sniping is incessant. Presented in list formation, it becomes volley, salvo assault. In 2009, Umberto Eco curated an exhibition and conference at the Louvre entitled The Infinity of Lists and produced an accompanying anthology of artworks and written material in support of his essay on list theory. Distinguishing between a poetics of the everything included and a poetics of the etc., Echo compares the shield of Achilles, as described by Homer in Book 18 of the Iliad, with the catalogue of the Greek fleet in Book 2, two of the first substantial poetic lists in Western literature. The shield, contends Echo, with its exquisite detail and seemingly endless representations of life and the world, is a closed form. This is John Flaxman's interpretation from 1821. Even if we allow for infinitesimally minute goldsmithery, as Echo puts it, its fixed circumference, its circular materiality, and its hierarchical structure discourage us from believing that anything of relevance lies beyond its boundary. It is an all-encompassing design, a finite accumulation. The cataloguing of the Argive ships, on the other hand, despite giving an initial impression of completeness, is actually an example of boundlessness, according to Echo, an enumeration hinting at the incomprehensible, whose properties 
are mere examples of an ultimately indescribable phenomenon. Homer tells us about the number of vessels and their commanders-in-chief and their points of origin, but we can only guess at the number of men on board and the weaponry at their disposal and their appetite for war, etc., etc., etc. The cataloguing of the ships can never practically conclude, which in Echo's view makes it a prime example of the topos of ineffability, a list that appeals to the imagination rather than the rational mind, and one that extends outwardly and exponentially in all directions, or inwardly, mise en abime, Russian doll style, all the way to vanishing point. Well, it's a theory, and typical of Echo's intellectual audacity and mischievousness. My own understanding and appreciation of lists is less philosophical and more to do with attempting to recognize the pragmatic reasons a poet might turn to the list as a means of articulation. It often results in classifying the list in accordance with the kinds of list we use in everyday life and have done for thousands of years. Lists that have acquired recognized titles such as the to-do list, the guest list, the bucket list, not unrelated to the wish list, the inventory or the audit, the litany, the roll call or register, sometimes related to the payroll, the short list, the charge sheet, the menu, sometimes related to the recipe, the catalogue, the blacklist, a term I'd be uncomfortable with these days, but still in common currency, even in liberal publications, and the checklist in which the list maker stands, pen and clipboard in hand, putting a tick against every box, indulging their OCD and completist tendencies. In the second book of the Mutability Cantos, the posthumously published coda, which both form and matter appear to be parcel of some following book of the Fairy Queen, list heavy in its own right, Spencer embarks on further successions of lists, including a list of the four elements, earth, water, air and fire, and their various forms and properties, outlined by Dame Mutability herself, followed immediately by a list of seasons, lusty spring, jolly summer, autumn all in yellow clad, and winter clothed all in frieze one Spencerian stanza each. Not content with dividing the year into quarters, and despite already having yodeled, or perhaps yokeled, his way through the shepherd's calendar some years previously, the poet then has mutability subpoena the individual months in calendric order, hence sturdy March, fresh April, fair May, jolly June, hot July, rich arrayed August, September who marched eke on foot, October full of merry glee, gross and fat November, chill December, old January, and bringing up the rear, cold February. One Spencerian stanza each. Had enough? Spencer hasn't. After these, there came the night and day one shared Spencerian stanza. Enough, 
Nope. Then came the hours. In fact, Spencer mercifully defers from listing all 24 of them. A horological enumeration he hadn't felt able to resist in his epithalamium, though that was no consolation for a sapped Walter Savage Landor, who admitted in his poem to Wordsworth, Thee gentle Spencer fondly led, but me he mostly sent to bed. This isn't to say that Spencer's listings here are either inelegant or irrelevant, or even entirely soporific. On a personal note, the mutability cantos are among my favorite sections from the entire work. Though for anyone who has hiked, NB, not walked, but hiked, through the Fairy Queen from starting line to finishing post, the quality of those closing stanzas are easily confused with the delirium associated with entering the home straight, if that is indeed where they were intended to lie. Certainly, there's a sense of the poet taking full advantage of the cataloguing opportunities on offer, treading water, perhaps, marking time, we might say, or possibly indulging in a little bit of what sports commentators these days refer to as grandstanding or showboating, playing ole football with goals already scored and points already won. In terms of cross-referencing the mutability cantos with my own pattern book of list types, yes, there's something of the checklist and the stock take here, and also the CV or resume by way of audition, the poet outlining his eminent suitability for the vacancy by performing an on-the-spot demonstration of his undeniable talents. But the list form is appropriate in this instance because the mutability cantos are, in part, a courtroom drama presided over by nature, where the meta-case for mutability is highlighted by Spencer's inventive descriptions and creative rhyming, e.g. ethereal and unusual, and the meta-case for Jove's constancy is represented by the regular form, the ongoing logic, and the apparently inexhaustible, I won't say interminable, the apparently inexhaustible procession of evidence and witnesses. Lost him. Oh, there he is. <clears throat> Even within individual lines, the scales of justice tip one way, then another. The reader seduced and charmed in one moment, ground into submission the next. And indeed, the trial does end with something of a hung jury. When I say ground into submission, clearly I'm reading this as a citizen of the 21st century with my goldfish-sized attention span and with the siren songs of Netflix and Angry Birds calling me away from my dusty old copy of Spencer's never-ending story with its microscopic typeface and baffling archaisms. Conversely, a person's allotted span in late 16th century Britain was roughly 39 years, so there were good reasons not to hang around. 400 years later, Joe Shapcott may have had Spencer in mind and was certainly exercised by questions of life expectancy, 
when she penned the title poem to her book, Of Mutability, a collection she acknowledges at the outset that owes everything to a team of medics at a Herefordshire hospital. In the second of two stanzas, the poem suddenly erupts or fragments into a list, a list giddy with possibilities and overwhelmed by uncertainty, with no comfort to be gained from earthly occurrences and with mind and spirit beginning to drift beyond the body's jurisdiction, not beholden to the same gravitational laws. She writes, look up to catch eclipses, gold leaf, comets, angels, chandeliers out of the corner of your eye. Join them if you like. Learn astrophysics or learn folk song, human sacrifice, mortality, flying, fishing, sex without touching much. Don't trouble though to head anywhere but the sky. Shelley wasn't averse to the occasional list and liked his mutability as well. I'm thinking of his first mutability poem, the one that ends, naught may endure but mutability. Paraphrase, the only thing that stays the same is change. A most agreeable truism, worthy of a latter-day fortune cookie, fridge magnet, or Christmas cracker from one of the better department stores. So agreeable, in fact, that it crops up in chapter 10 of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, heralding Victor's meeting with the tragic, stitched-together wretch beneath the awful majesty of Mont Blanc. Mutability the creature, being called forth by mutability the poem, as penned by the author's husband. It's list-making as echo and chain reaction, the kind that can usher a biddable reader from one poet or poem to another, a reader like myself, always keen to honour synchronicity and serendipity wherever and whenever they occur, as I'm doing here. This year marks the 200th anniversary of the date of publication of Shelley's Mutability. In that same summer of 1816, a human cargo of real-life wretches were cast adrift in the ocean on a raft cobbled together from the remains of the French frigate Medusa, beached on a sandbank off the coast of Senegal. Abandoned by the flotilla of lifeboats carrying the higher-ranking crew and the higher-status passengers, 145 men and one woman clung to a raft that was hardly bigger than this podium and never fully afloat. Thirteen days later, after mutiny, disease, madness, murder, suicide and cannibalism, only 15 people remained alive, including one Alexander Corriard, whose account of the voyage became a notorious bestseller following his eventual return to home soil. Corriard would later advise the young artist Theodore Jericho as he embarked on his scandalous early romantic painting, The Raft of the Medusa. I bring this episode of history into play by virtue of its bicentenary because two lists associated with it allow me to segue into the next part of this lecture. Both lists, one a roll call or passenger manifest, the other a shopping list, could easily pass themselves off 
as contemporary poems. The unarticulated infamy surrounding both the shipwreck and the painting, providing all the necessary framework to elevate the terse, unembroidered itemizations into the poetic without need of continuity. Firstly, Coriard's list of all the people in the expedition before the Medusa got into trouble. Presented not as names, but as trades, and therefore as characters, it conceals a smaller inner list, a party of accidental and arbitrary survivors, a skeleton crew still unaware of a journey that will take them to within a hair's breadth of the afterlife and towards immortalization in one of the most famous paintings of all time. The second, a list of expenses, including materials purchased by Jericho for his attic studio in Paris, a studio which he lined with rotting body parts from the local morgues and hospitals to create the necessary atmosphere for his masterpiece, and in order to study the texture and tone of decaying flesh. These oils, once procured and applied to the canvas, would become incarnate. In noticing, tracking down and collecting list poems over a number of years, those which catalogue aspects of, of the human body have come to form a substantial sub-collection in their own right. From the Old Testament Song of Songs to Ted Hughes's Bride and Bridegroom Lay Hidden for Three Days and Beyond. These poems and parts thereof include instances of the literary blazon, passages of a poem through which uh, usually woman's features or attributes are listed, the poetic equivalent of checking someone out, as with this oft-quoted example from our resident cataloger and serial serializer, Edmund Spencer, taking from his epithalamium. And to digress slightly, Though tarry hit me should. I've never been able to resist teaching Spencer's epithalamium without throwing in section one of Peter Redding's poem of the same title, which rather than honouring the bride and groom, chooses to sneer at the acquisitive couple and the materialistic institution of marriage itself through an unceremonious ceremonial recreation of that most egregious nuptial phenomenon the wedding list. Redding's sarcastic dowry includes dragon straw doormat in plattered seagrass from China, tick-tock wall clock, battery-operated quartz, quartz movement in pine frame, la primula striped dishwasher-proof glazed earthenware coffee set, valance with neat box pleats to fit three-foot to five-foot beds fixed by Velcro pads, Michel Gourard's kitchen work table with base of solid pine, including a duckboard shelf for storage, a knife rack and pegs for tea cloths, boxwood pastry crimper, etc., etc. But to return to my body poems file within my list poems folder, it's been interesting to note how many of the more contemporary examples seek to delve below the epidermis or exhibit a fascination with medical procedures. Poems such as Paul Farley's Relic, 
One's a crown, two's a crown, three, four, five, distal occlusal, six, distal occlusal, seven, occlusal. Upper left, one, mesial incisal, two, mesial incisal, three's a crown, four, five is absent, space closed. Six, occlusal, seven, occlusal, eight. Lower left, one's a crown, two mesial, three, four occlusal, five is absent, space closed. Six occlusal, seven occlusal, eight is absent. Right, one, two, three, four distal occlusal, five's a buckle, six and seven are absent, space closed. Among other meanings, the title relic refers to the role that dental records play in identifying the dead. So in part the poem is an exhumation of identity and a retrieval of the past. But Farley's reconstruction evokes an excruciatingly sentient experience as well, conjuring up the sanitized smell of the consulting room and the dentist's coffee-stained breath, recalling the scrape of metal on enamel, evoking the horror of some unspeakably barbaric utensil antagonizing sensitive flesh and taunting hair trigger nerves. There's also a sense of irreverence and even political reclamation because despite being intensely personal, such inspection records were only ever an overheard and encrypted experience formed of specialist language and classified information, verbalized by the dentist and recorded by an accomplice, sorry, an assistant or hygienist, while the patient remained gagged, doped, horizontal, terrified and silent. This was especially true for my generation, a generation whose industry-sponsored sugar addictions bankrolled the Iberian holidays and hardwood conservatories of dental practitioners all over the country, and whose tonsils and adenoids were whipped out at the drop of a hat. I can still see the maker's name, Ash, printed on the million watt interrogation light, sorry, inspection lamp that blazed above me as a bearded figure in a blood-stained lab coat loomed overhead with a sledgehammer and a pair of industrial bolt cutters. The poem's funny as well. It elicits a laugh or at least a smile probably because of the way the list progresses, sometimes confirming expectations, sometimes supplying the satisfaction of pattern and order, and sometimes delivering the unanticipated, as with the painful and expensive sounding buckle. Some of the comedy in Relic also derives from the latent recognition of the jargon. And although there's no humour whatsoever to be found in Seamus Heaney's bog body poems, as they're sometimes called, it's hard to stifle a sense of gratification or even pleasure that takes place when the poet presents what feels to be exactly the right word or phrase for conveying the physical and emotional properties of preserved human remains by way of an image or simile. The crock of the pelvis in Bog Queen, the ball of his heel like a basalt egg in the Grobel Man, the frail rigging of her ribs in Punishment, prune stones for teeth 
in strange fruit. If the Tolland man in Wintering Out was a projection of intent, an imagined meeting with a dead body at some future date and distant location, then the bog body poems in the subsequent North are close encounters in real time. In fact, a first person experience in the case of Bog Queen, where Heaney inhabits the cadaver to speak her monologue, to deliver his macabre blazon. And if the Tolland man was written by the undertaker's assistant practicing on, a, on an anatomically correct corpse, the body poems in North append by Heaney, the credentialed pathologist poet, constructing his autopsy report limb by limb, this time in list mode. Across eight pages and four poems, we examine in this order, head, feet, skins, stomach, brain, nails, pelvis, breasts, thighs, hides, skull, hair, head, feet, hair, birth cord, bone, skull, wrists, heel, instep, hips, spine, head, chin, throat, hair, face, head, shoulder, nails, neck, front, nipples, ribs, body, bone, brain, head, hair, face, brain, muscles, bones, head, teeth, hair, nose, and eye holes. It's invasive almost nauseating stuff, made all the more unsettling by a sense of Heaney deliberately breaching his own guidelines on taste and decency, as expressed in the penultimate sentence of his earlier manifesto poem, Personal Helicon, where he judges that to pry into roots, to finger slime, is beyond all adult dignity. This in a poem about peering into wells staring into the secretive, chthonic earth. We might infer from that observation that to go ahead with such probing intrusion requires a childlike naivety, or the setting aside of grown-up sensibilities and sensitivities. Which leads me to wonder if there isn't something childlike about the list itself, in the guileless and spontaneous enjoyment that extends from pointing, separating and itemising, a delight and also a comfort, a kind of security derived from tidying the chaos of life into an arranged, comprehensible and accessible structure, a way of warehousing a disorderly universe and stacking and storing muddled emotions on neat shelves. I said I'd return to Whitman, and I'm going to keep my word. Walt Whitman, born the year Jericho's Raft of the Medusa, made its controversial appearance at the Paris Salon. A plate glassy style was what Whitman said he was after, and that's what he achieved. Something with a highly finished surface, both transparent and reflective. And for all its extraordinary appearance at the time, a poetry that conforms to the Goldilocks principle of being neither to this nor to that, but just right. Indisputably radical, but eminently readable. How many more can that be said of?
And if you haven't read Whitman, either silently to yourself or more adventurously out loud to yourself, or even more audaciously out loud to other people, which would be my recommendation, you've missed out on one of the most singular and instructive experiences that poetry can offer. Even now, some 161 years after the publication of the first edition of Leaves of Grass, the work still glows with a discernible redshift of poetic expansion and acceleration. Or to put it another way, here are the captured images from when poetry started to step beyond its traditional dances and marches and took flight. A Wright Brothers moment or Montgolfier Brothers moment. Despite which, and even with all the documented evidence to hand, it's not easy to find or create a concise and cogent definition of Whitman's style. A style that needed none of the structures and strictures of governed verse for its sounding board, but instead obtained all the poetic traction and purchase that open form poetry still requires from the drag and air resistance of the blank page. In fact, an alternative way of describing its qualities would be to explain how it came into being, its preconditions, how Whitman's mode of address extended from his exposure to public oratory, from his love of theatre and proclaimed language, from his predilection for the syntactical measures of biblical pronouncement, from his experience of typesetting and arranging words as attractively as possible on a page, and from his style of note-taking as evidenced by his compendious journals. All those influences and approaches culminate in a harmonic expression in Whitman, an expression which metered writing could neither harvest nor harness. Nor could it adequately house a vocabulary derived from his burgeoning range of interests and stimulations. And this, in a mid-19th century America, which by some accounts was a veritable big top expo of early science, pseudoscience, mysticism, and religious splinter groups. Believers in phrenology, it must have been said before, need their heads feeling. Accordingly, Whitman did just that, probably on several occasions, and published slightly sexed up versions of the results alongside his poems. We should be grateful that his imperfect score in language didn't dissuade him or deflect him from his destiny, but an even lower four out of seven in the category of tune allows me to point out that for someone who often titled his poems songs, his poems are very unsong-like, at least in the conventional verse-chorus sense. What they are is musical, full of the musical phrasing and cadences of the religious proclaimer, or the prophet, or the sermonizer, or the medium, or the mesmerist, or the hypnotist, or the thespian, or the soapbox politician, or any speaker, raconteur, debater, narrator and presenter for whom the refrain and the list is central to their technique. Add to this Whitman's passion for inclusivity and his desire to embody the entire republic 
and his ambition to personify democracy itself, and his holistic belief in the interconnectedness of everything, and his sense of a world fizzing and trembling with magnetic, electrical and gravitational forces, plus the so-called odic forces coursing through the nervous system. And with all such energies being enhanced and choreographed by a higher power and universal deity, add all those elements together and append to them is a bullion and usually optimistic personality and a tendency to the pleasures of voluptuousness, as his phrenological assessment puts it, and his advocacy of pluralism and his linguistic effervescence, and you begin to see how and why Walt Whitman became Walt Whitman. Or as Tom Gunn once put it, how his voice welled up from a bubbling source. Here's his poem, Apostrophe, in its entirety. And here it is with the text omitted, apart from the bubbles of the first word in every line. If two previous lectures constitute a tradition or even a list, and I want to continue that tradition by ending with a poem. So this is section nine from Whitman's I Sing the Body Electric. The poet here, not merely anatomical and systematic in his top to toe, knee bone connected to the thigh bone piecing together of the human jigsaw, but epiphanic, rhapsodic, orgasmic, sacramental, his itemization becoming list, litany, incantation, heartbeat, breath. The writing itself, not just life affirming, but life forming, an act of quasi-religious and near scientific communion and afflatus through which poem and body and spirit become one. O oh my body, I dare not desert the likes of you in other men and women, nor the likes of the parts of you. I believe the likes of you are to stand or fall with the likes of the soul, and that they are the soul. I believe the likes of you shall stand or fall with my poems, and that they are my poems. Man's, woman's, child's, youth's, wife's, husband's, mother's, father's, young man's, young woman's poems. Head, neck, hair, ears, drop and tympan of the ears, eyes, eye fringes, iris of the eye, eyebrows, and the waking or sleeping of the lids. Mouth, tongue, lips, teeth, roof of the mouth, jaws and the jaw hinges. Nose, nostrils of the, of the nose, and the petition, cheeks, temples, forehead, chin, throat, back of the neck, neck slew, strong shoulders, manly beard, scapula, hind shoulders, and the ample side round of the chest, upper arm, armpit, elbow socket, lower arm, arm sinews, arm bones, wrist and wrist joints, hand, palm, knuckles, thumb, forefinger, finger joints, fingernails, broad breast front, curling hair of the breast, breastbone, breast side, ribs, belly, backbone, joints of the backbone, hips, hip sockets, hip strength inward and outward round, man balls, root, strong set of thighs well carrying the trunk above, leg fibres, knee, knee pan, upper leg, under leg, ankles, instep, football, toes, toe joints, the heel, 
All attitudes, all the shapeliness, all the belongings of my body or your body or of anyone's body, male or female, the lung sponges, the stomach sac, the bowels sweet and clean, the brain in its fold, folds inside the skull frame, sympathies, heart valves, palate valves, sexuality, maternity, womanhood, and all that is a woman, and the man that comes from woman, the womb, the teats, nipples, breast milk, tears, laughter, weeping, love looks, love perturbations and rising, the voice, articulation, language, whispering, shouting aloud, food, drink, pulse, digestion, sweat, sleep, walking, swimming, poise on the hips, leaping, reclining, embracing, arm curving and tightening, the continual changes of the flex of the mouth and around the eyes, the skin, the sunburnt shade, freckles, hair, the curious sympathy one feels when feeling with the hand the naked meat of the body, the circling rivers, the breath and breathing it in and out, the beauty of the waist and thence of the hips and thence downward toward the knees, the thin red jellies within you or within me, the bones and the marrow and in the bones, the exquisite realization of health. Oh, I say these are not the parts and the poems of the body only, but of the soul. Oh, I say now these are the soul. Thank you.